0: Hello, listeners. This is Emmett. I'm here with John. This is your weekly installment of Exhaust, the podcast about why nothing feels possible. What's up, John? Hey. How's it going, man? Good. Um, first of all, I just wanted to say you've launched your Patreon at you patreon.com/exhaust. I uh, if I get that wrong, oh well. uh <laughs> <I'm pretty sure laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. But I, <laughs> like, I really wanted to take all of this patrons that we do have you help us buy research materials in fact with some of the money i can now afford a couple more books uh on korea and stuff like that for our korea series which john and i have been talking extensively about and rolling out um and you also pay for all our hosting and all of this stuff we greatly appreciate it everybody who's left a review everyone who shared it blah 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 you don't have to support us just by doing the patreon though we'd love to have you there thank you it really means a lot and uh please keep doing that. <laughs> uh if you can. It's uh it's great.
1: Pretty gratifying that like anyone at all is paying money for this in a way when you're doing this. That's yeah. how it feels.
0: Yeah, totally. I'm like absolutely bowled over by the response so far. So I just wanted to start with some gratitude there. Okay, so today we're gonna talk about That Feel When No GF, which came out a year ago. And the movie ends at the top of 2020, which I thought was fucking hysterical because it already feels like a relic in some ways.
1: I was thinking that, yeah.
0: I don't think any of the the things it gets into have like gone away, but like a certain thing has shifted. And hopefully we can get to that. Yeah. This movie was directed, edited, you know, Alex Lee Moyer. It's her first film. I guess she has experience in editing before. Very impressive for a first film, I want to say. Like, quite yeah. coherent and thoughtful. I think there's some like limitations here, and we'll get into that as we go through. Combot identifies that in some of his like review of the movie that he is in, <laughs> uh, which was uh, a pretty interesting. <laughs> move co-produced by Barrett over at Contain. I know that um, some of we have overlap with the Contain listenership, so containers out there what's up and uh, scored by John mouse and Ariel pink, who are now like infamous for their Trump sympathies being at the Capitol riots. I'm not really going to get into that here um, though. I do think it's like an interesting detail uh, and attention that's in the movie itself. Cause we know that those guys were in support of it and behind, <laughs> had total line closer to us. I don't really feel any animus there. I just think it's at least addressing up at the top and, now we can move on and talk about what the fuck is in the movie mm-hmm. um this movie follows four angry young white men as it goes through who are i guess maybe it's five guys
1: yeah remember. one i think was it egg white he's not in it a ton
0: yeah he's not in it a ton she couldn't get him a ton so it's um gonna be Combot. it's going to be sean it is charles and viddy and then uh kenny in el paso who's like dripped out with the confederate flag ring
1: ring yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, steps I was, the boots i was just like damn dude <laughs> like, that is
0: some <laughs> shit you can only pull off in el paso that moment when he's talking and he's just like i mean is that like woke shit even real he's like i live in el paso nobody like that lives here and i was like yeah dude i can <laughs> tell
1: <laughs> that was so funny that guy was awesome yeah uh, we can call him the texan
0: yeah the texan <laughs> what, he he's his uh section of the film had also one of my favorite shots in it which is just him sort of collapsed drunk against a street light in the middle of a parking lot and this drone starts from overhead drops down in front of him and then circles around him while he's just sort of motionless there and i thought that was like fucking incredible that was probably the most like sublime visual experience
1: of the entire thing yeah i could see definitely like oh you know i could see how she could an editor and how that experience probably translated into some like technical ability to do some of this uh, directing i guess she did yeah totally she had other people doing the the filming though i think
0: yeah i think so she had some cameraman and stuff like that i mean yeah as you would you know But just
1: like- yeah just generally speaking like there was a certain level of craft which definitely like you don't normally see it in somebody's like first indie documentary but it was really there like a lot of the shots of texas were just beautiful and like they did a lot of her shots of where they lived did so much to communicate it told you so much that you didn't hear in words
0: right i think a lot of time B-roll in drones is a cliche, a visual cliche now. And really I mean, it's like you see it in any like direct to video or like YouTube video where it's just like the fucking desaturated <laughs> B-roll and the and this new thing. And somebody's like narrating over it. Yeah. And it's really meant to while well, there's some like, you know, atmospheric music in the background. And what it's supposed to do is do this like work of mood in place of any other substantive content Now i'm not against atmospherics or against like mood work i think that that stuff can be pretty good but for her it was also contextualizing who these mm-hmm. people were where they lived like what was going on and i based on the reviews like when this stuff came out like it was like it was as if she had given a bunch of fucking red Browns, the microphone to like expound on their ideology and then turned it into like triumph of the will uh, (laughs) for like the four Chan boards or whatever. And that was like very much not the vibe, you know? I mean, I was thinking about this. Okay. So here's, here's a way to contextualize what's happening in this movie before like I want to get into ways in which I could understand or relate to these guys. I kept thinking about what 4chan is and now like over a decade out from it being a thing that has like a cultural expression. I kept thinking about uh, anonymous in the time of Obama and around Edward Snowden, and then like anonymous around the time of Trump and the difference between these things. Like all this problematic shit or whatever was going on in the era of Guy F- like the high anonymous time, like the Guy Fawkes mask, the like doing it for the lulls, like all of this stuff of my late teens and early 20s. And there was somehow this like utopic bent to it because these guys were doing like DIY color revolutions in Tunisia or whatever, or they were trolling the State Department or they were trolling you know, the church of Scientology. I mean, what's her name writes that whole book about it. Uh, Hacker trickster Joker spy or whatever, extremely corny shit. Verso put out as a cash grab, you know, and it 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 comes with that whole thing where there's still this like dark, mysterious, very young male energy, you know, no girls on the internet was really like (laughs) the vibe back then. And there was still this sort of like admiration for it or something like that, because we were still in the era of like Silicon Valley tech utopianism, where basically every left-wing academic decided that they were a libertarian anarchist, whether they said so or not, and had this put away all of their critical thinking skills in terms of its relationship to Silicon Valley, which is crazy because that's also when like everybody's still citing Foucault all over the place. Now, you fast forward to the Trump era and we have the specter of the dangerous young white man. This is basically like super predator talk for like unfuckable dudes in like Wyoming, you know, like that's basically what it is here. But the fear is like that they're posting, you know, and that they might do a Capitol riot or a Charlottesville, which is funny because like, I think it's Viddy shits on Charlottesville at some point in the movie. And he's just like, yeah, some of these guys are so disaffected. They'll do something like that. But like,
1: I don't give a shit about that stuff. He was saying like, you forget that you're playing a character on the internet and you forget that there's a separation yeah. and then you end up in a place like Charlottesville yeah, because I, you've trolled yourself. And so like losing it basically.
0: Yeah. The abyss stares back into you, you know, which I, I mean, I thought was a great observation. You know, and showed that these guys, I mean, Charles definitely says some shit online that I think is gross. But shows that, like, the extent to which what they were doing was performance, their self-awareness of that fact. I mean, sometimes it's like a tenuous bi- boundary between those things, as Viddy points out. But also, you know, Jeff Schollenberger, I'll link this in the show notes, has a great piece on, like, metamodernism. And the Trump era and the fact that high irony and high sincerity, sincerity can exist together is especially helpful if you consider like at some point irony becomes plausible deniability. I think that that's definitely true. And so that can work well with the type of confessional nature. So that's an interesting cultural moment to be in. But the reaction to this film, I thought was like totally outsized and could have only existed while Trump was still on Twitter
1: hmm yeah and i think one of the things because we're talking about 4chan you know like there is the idea of the anonymous group of like social activist people mm-hmm. kind of growing out of it and that ends up sort of in the media and then people aren't sure you know like they played the infamous van exploding clip from way back when yeah. it's like, <laughs> anonymous Ooh, you know like So it was like, are these guys scary? Are they good? Are they doing good stuff out there? Are they standing up to the bad people or what? Like, there's an ambiguity to it all. And then you find the media falling on different sides of it, depending on what's going on at what given time. And then you have the kind of, like, sort of fact that really never makes it fully out there, which is that, like, you know, this is a website, probably where most people's activity are dedicated to, like, you know, obsessing about like mecca and you know like looking at hentai and somehow this stuff is like growing out of that like pretty much dissipative like anime pornography consumption and like chatting about video games and so it's really unclear because it's an anonymous message board like what is the crossover between these different sides of this place who's involved in what like does anything really tie them together beyond the fact that they can kind of move to these extremely porous borders between like parts of the message board. Right. There's I just, mean, like a lot of ambiguity around the we way. We could even we- say
0: this, we could even say this, like the way I think about it is like, okay, 4chan is a th- place where things happen online. It's anonymous. Yeah. So you can easily ascribe a unity to it, but that's not necessarily the case. It would basically be like saying like, well, I think that there is a connection between, you know, Mecca, Hitler, 69, Hentai Lord, and Lin-Manuel Miranda, because they're both on Twitter.
1: Yeah, pretty, like, that's kind of a fundamental tension there to attempting to do, like, I think Kant bought, it says, it, like, a taxonomical bridge too far. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, it well, it mirrors, I think, what you end up getting with the idea of the incel, which is that these guys are all somehow categorizable with this word, But I think in the film, it pretty quickly breaks down and you kind of start to think like, oh, that's really not like even the main way to describe what's going on with anybody here. And it also ends up being somewhat specious in terms of how like most of the media is understanding the word you or I could say like "In seldom and know exactly. I think what we're talking about without any confusion, but it's sort of taken on a life of its own, I think, Mm -hmm. out there in the world which tends to obscure more than more than to, you know, unveil in terms of, like, what's the content of the idea. And so that's, like, ascribing unity to groups of people who hang out mm-hmm. <laughs> or don't, you know? Like, that's sort of one of the fundamental interesting things going on with all of this stuff, and I guess has been for a while.
0: Yeah, and some of these guys did follow each other, like Sean's a devotee of Compot and... yeah. I mean,
1: he's a a really young
0: kid, too. Like, really young in this movie. He's, like, 20 or something like that. And I was, like, damn, like, this kid was sharper than I was at 20. Like, he's way more caught on to, like, his world and what it means and how to, like, deal with that. That thing he says, like, we live in the most powerful country in the world, but if you live here, you wouldn't know it. Feels Mm -hmm. especially true after COVID.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was. I guess we can just get into it a little bit. Yeah. Like, he's a good place to start. We see him deadlifting in the beginning with, like, J pop playing. And it's I was pretty, like, go
0: off, King. Yeah, <laughs>
1: That's pretty <so> sick. Lit. <laughs> um, and I, well, like, that was a whole interesting thing that you don't really get too into in the documentary, but I think it's something we're both pretty familiar with is that, like, you're a skinny nerd and you, like, try to start lifting a little bit of weight, and a lot of things about you change over time and like that's an inextricable part of that, you know. Yeah, totally. Um and I it was so easy to see with him like he said it, you know, like you either want to be the skinny nerd who reads a lot of books or the really jacked guy, and he's like no, nah, you got to be both. Like
0: <laughs> yeah. I was like, "Sean knows what's up." <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and it you know, so one of the things which Conrad brings up in his review is that he felt like Sean because him and Sean are like the closest out of anyone, I think, in this documentary to each other, besides the two brothers, of course. And so he knows a lot about what was going on in Sean's life during the filming of this. And he says that most of that doesn't come through. And you just kind of get a pretty banal view of a guy who's just sort of like generically disaffected mm-hmm. and kind of like trying to overcome it. But you know, he's like a lot of the personal tragedy that was ongoing in his life at the time and maybe the like actual reasons for why he was the way he was, we don't really get to see. And so we're not quite coming into contact with the subject in a certain way. And yeah. I could definitely like looking back, I could feel that. But well, when he
0: brings up the fact that he's working two jobs and his mom has cancer, or like yeah. even that he he lives in an apartment with her, yeah, you know, and he's kind of a neat I was like, okay, well, there's like a lot of this guy's life that we're, like, we're not seeing. And Compot says maybe that's because Alex Lee Moyer has a regard for his privacy. And I totally feel that. But it's an uncomfortable thing, right? Like Joan Didion's a writer is always selling someone out type of thing. Yeah. Like <laughs> it is, in a way, your job to be like weirdly exploitative, <laughs> you know? So take that as you will. You know, I don't know if I'd be comfortable with doing that. You know, in fact, I tried to do some embedded reporting and realized that I couldn't because I was uncomfortable, like divulging in that way. So mm-hmm. I understand the, the gun shyness of it.
1: Yeah. But so that and I mean, you got to see where he lives, which I think that's where we were saying, like the establishing shots of these places were really like fundamental. Yeah. It's something that gets brought up in the Rolling Stone review which I think is like pretty much an exercise in FUD most of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, What's FUD by the way, fear, uncertainty, and doubt.
2: Like,
1: (laughs) I'm not going to really give you anything specific that I have a problem with. I'm just going to try and spread as much as I can. This general vague notion that like, we don't know, and this could be bad. And like, isn't it irresponsible? Mm -hmm. I'm just asking questions like that kind of BS. Um, it's a fishing expedition yeah yeah it's not worth reading if you're listening to this and thinking about googling it it's honestly not but one of the things he says in the end it's like his big like oh you know like we never really explore why these guys are the way that they are like isn't that weird you know like what why is that and i was like you know like to be a little bit like that's fair like we're saying we don't really know that much about sean's life but like It also requires you to have not paid any attention at all to like come away with that as your general feeling.
0: Like you can infer a great deal from both what these guys say and the, I guess the establishing shots, as you said, to Moyer's credit, right? Like so many people I know have no idea what it's like to live in flyover country. Like they have no idea what it's like to be in the middle of nowhere and to be like, I might die here. And this constant dread, the feeling that there's limiting horizons, because it's not like most places have this like burgeoning, thriving community that you feel a part of. If your place is thriving, it's being propped up by weird re- real estate deals that could go under at any moment and like flat design coffee shops that are appearing adjacent to that and feel often like alienating places to be if anything's happening at all. Like otherwise it looks like the end of Jesus camp when we were talking about it, where it's sort of, you know, mass culture, strip malls everywhere. And like, I don't hate that, but when you live in it, you can also feel like it's very hostile to you or if not hostile, just indifferent. And it's, there's no social place to go to, you know, there's no life to have. And if it's not giving you something, then it's hard to love it in any way, you know, because it gives you nothing to love and it does nothing to nurture you necessarily, unless you have an adequate amount of money. And these guys don't, their prospects are diminishing.
1: Yeah. The guy who lives in Texas, Like the only place he can go is the bar. And he says he goes to the bar and drinks because at least he feels like a human being doing that. But you don't get the sense that he's like making friends or meeting people there. It's more of just like a place where he can go exist and other people are like doing stuff too. And he's at least
0: not drinking alone. Is it the vibe I got? And I was like, well, yeah, you aren't like that is in my personal experience in upgrade but (laughs) 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 definitely in quality and not in kind
1: yeah and it i mean it was pretty like yeah i think that's rough like you're right there's probably nowhere else for you to go in, like fucking lubbock texas you know what i mean like basically the only thing you can do in that situation is like get out but quite often if you're unemployed or like working a handful of crappy jobs, whatever money you get is just going into like sustaining your existence. And the longer and longer that goes on, the more blunted your ambition and ability to try and do anything is because it just wears you down and you just kind of want to take whatever respite you can from that, which I think trying to get out of a town like that and just trying to like chill out are two things that are hard to commingle because if you're on that thin of a margin, like you have to be basically going at it 110% all the time because you know, like maybe you save up a little money, but then the car like has a fucking problem. I mean, being poor is
0: fucking expensive.
1: You know, yeah, I remember
0: like- living in Santa Fe. And I got offered a job opportunity in California. And so I had to ask my mom for money to get flown out there because I had no money. I was paycheck to paycheck. And I ended up there and it ended up not working out. And all I remember was being offered the job and then being asked to move there like immediately. And then hesitating to pull the trigger because I didn't know how to ask for the money to move because there was none. I couldn't afford a deposit on an apartment in Berkeley, working at a bookstore in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Like there was, and I remember when it all fell through, you know, I was about to be in my thirties. I had worked dead end jobs all over the country and I had ended up there. And I was like, fuck, this might be it. People kept being like, why don't you move? Like, why don't you get out of there? And I was like, I'm sorry, do you have a job for me to go? What am I going to move somewhere just because? Also, do you know how much money that costs? Like, what am I going to do? You know, I could feel the walls starting to like close in. And you're like, wow, like I am, I need to figure out how to get used to this. I need to figure out how to cope. I need to figure out how to accept these confines because there's no future here but this is also my life that's what's so weird about these pieces they're like how dare she talk to these guys i was like look you're part of a fucking media class where you got to meritocratically quote unquote end up writing for like the fucking washington post or rolling stone or something like that You know, which means you probably lived a life that had like nothing to do. When Kenny's talking about all his friends that died, how like every close friend he has is dead. I was like, fucking no one who's writing these reviews knows what that's like. I've had friends die. I've gotten, I remember being, Santa Fe is always at like 99% capacity. And I got fucked by a landlord and I had to sleep on couches one summer in between semesters at grad school. And I remember, which is exhausting exhausting i was lucky that i had people that could prop me up but i remember staying at a buddy's house where or at his apartment where like everyone else was on drugs or drinking you know like one of those like across the street from a gas station (laughs) like you know and he was like an iguana like he never put his ac on and it's the desert heat and he only has a leather couch for me to sleep on (laughs) and i just like wake up and cold pools of my sweat every morning for like a week or two and I remember getting a message from somebody I went to college with and she was like you know your ex-girlfriend died I want you to know And she didn't have information of when or why. And I just remember like stepping outside, sitting on the other couch, facing the parking lot, which faced a small wall that obscured anything else, listening to the neighbors vomit and fight because they were all super drunk and just chain smoking, flying out because it was my mom's birthday the same time the memorial service was a month later. And meeting her boyfriend who told me he was always afraid that this is how we were going to meet who then explained that she overdosed three times in 36 hours. And the last time she slipped under the water in a tub where she was taking a bath and drowned. And he was the one who found her body. She was on life support for a week or two and then they pulled her off because she was never coming back. You know, I mean, that's not the only story I have like that. Yeah. And you listen to Kenny talk about where he realizes that he's really alone. And you're like, all you have to take away from this is that these guys are these like super dangerous, this guy posting online, like wearing problematic Confederate flag gear in El Paso, Texas, who has no prospects, no power, no ability to really reach out and get you. And you're like, this is the thing we need to be afraid of. These people don't want to deal with the reality Of what it's like outside of their urban hubs they don't care that's the outer dark
1: yeah it was pretty it was one of those moments when he talks about it because he tells you like yeah and then this friend just like gunned it into a wall in his car and died and split
0: his head open yeah
1: and then he gets to the last one and he's like i don't want to talk about that and you're just like fuck, man you know like i personally know what it's like to have friends and it's like you know what i mean and I've known, you know, a handful of people who have died in different ways.
0: Yeah, or gone to prison or ended up permanently in an institution. Or yeah. like, we both do.
1: And I'm pretty fortunate that none of my good friends that I know of, some of them, I don't really know what's going on with them anymore. But um, haven't ended up like that, I can easily empathize and think about, like, what if in rapid succession, the like three people I was closest to all took their own lives in some way. It's like, yeah, I really don't know what stuff is like for that guy at all. Like, you know what I mean? There's some basic humility that that yeah. should give you if you're witnessing it. Where you would be like, yeah, like, and then imagine
0: saying like, nobody really goes into like why these guys are the way they are. Yeah. <laughs> imagine writing that after yeah. watching that, after watching that, and being like, oh, there's just no like nothing to see here.
1: That was the shittiest fucking review I've ever read. <laughs> it was so bad. It starts out with, like, we have to feel so bad for the poor white man or whatever. It was like, go oh, fuck yourself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, totally. it, you don't, it's so, well, McIntyre might come out before this. So it'll be a good yeah, intro into, oh. like, what is that guy doing when he writes shit like that? It's not appealing to some kind of universal set of standards by which we could have a rational conversation about this documentary. You know, it's pure Mm -hmm. and simple. Like he's, he's doing an op, you know, like he is an agent for the media class who are agents for and so on and so on. And he's running a psychological op in the Rolling Stone, which is what all of this stuff is, where it's designed to say, Hey, like, you already agree with us. Here's like psychological confirmation of your righteousness. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Kantbot talks about it in the documentary when he talks about how Trump getting elected was kind of like the, it signaled the end of the media being able to have complete control over reality creation. And I do think that like, that's interesting because now they've taken on a much more oppositional role to new media Mm -hmm. In a new sense of that term where they're well aware of the fact that like a lot of people no longer rely on them. And Mm -hmm. so now there's an anxious over assertion of the need for expert opinion, which we're all really familiar with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but like, what does that really consist of? And it's purely like the expression of taste, you know, if you want to go back to that way of framing things, like it's, you know, like I need these guys to be this bad kind of guy so that I can dismiss them for all these other reasons, because that's the narrative that we're all going in on. And like, you know, why is that? So like many, many ways you could look at that, just from like, it generates impressions for the website. It makes more ad money. It is what people like or whatever, like doesn't really matter, but it's just like, that's how the thing operates but you can see so easily if you're just like a regular person, how there's like a reality which deserves, you know, your like basic human respect is being bulldozed over by someone who could never like they've made themselves incapable of a level of empathy, which is sort of astounding and like inhuman. Right.
0: They can only fetishize the pain of others. This is the, this is the, how Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, who brutalized working class and especially working class black life over the course of their careers are now like the woke saviors. Yeah. Khaled came out with a really great video that I'll link in the show notes called the birds, the bees and white supremacy, where he like walks into some of this stuff um, and how it functions. But all of this is just like legitimation for not doing anything, you know, and I mean, imagine saying any of the things that these reviewers say about this movie about, like, I don't know, young black men or something like that who probably, frankly, have similar experiences and disaffected feelings of being in society, especially if they're poor. And these people would call you fucking racist, right? I mean, but what they can do is they can say, like... There is this noble person who suffers, who is black that I fetishize like magical blackness, blah, 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 blah. And like, that's acceptable because I've created in my head, this like totem of what this is and can abstractly bludgeon people with it without addressing any of the underpinning realities to make excuses for my own position in society. Right. And also to let you know that I am a really good guy. Like don't worry, I'm good. I hate the right people.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny that you have to point out that something like that's fundamentally pretty disgusting and like dehumanizing for its subjects. Like I'm pretty sure most human beings don't want to be like the weird pawn in somebody's like crazy psychological game where they legitimate their societal position and in like institutional existence via the creation of these narratives and things like that with just a complete lack of regard for like what anyone's actually going through.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I mean, this is a tale as old as time uh, a great version of this takes place in the conversation between the, communist characters the white communists and bigger thomas and richard wright's native son which is a a, a, hilarious exchange and honestly props for richard wright because he was like a commie yeah (laughs) Um, and and, uh and and i'm big props for like you know letting that critique stand as one of the funniest and darkest not darkest but one of the funniest and really sad human moments in in that novel so look i mean the other thing when i was hearing these guys talk is i was like i get it you know part of it's just that they're young especially sean who seems to be putting it together we were talking about how he doesn't really seem to fit in the incel category he's just young and it fucked <laughs> you know yeah um, and trying to figure out how to overcome in spite of all that in a world yeah, where just, like, I... you
1: don't have a degree you're fucked he's just like a regular guy in like yeah. a lot of ways. And you you realize that I think, you know, and like to the extent that pretty much all of these guys are just like regular dudes who are dealing with the fact that like they're have the life that they have and they're figuring it out as they go. And then you're like, what's well, what I'm doing. And like pretty much everyone I know is doing on some level. And then that's when the category starts to break down and you realize that like, incel is not the best way to understand what's going on here because i think like you see it applies to like so many people at least who are living in this country like this is just a general condition of a lot of people and Mm -hmm. yeah i
0: mean but what's interesting is that despite the incel thing maybe not being a category or taxonomic bridge too far right yeah is that the phrase that feel when no gf i think even speaks beyond the incel experience and indicates a dead future, a sclerotic society that lacks intimacy. It's almost funny now because COVID life looks like an insane, like avant garde over agreement with all of those problems.
1: Yeah, it's that feel when no GF is more powerful, I think, mm-hmm. because it. It's a meme, so it has an innate artistic breadth to it. Yeah. In terms of experience and truth. Where you're like, Yeah, you know, I've stared out of a window like as the sun's coming up and I haven't been to bed yet. And I'm like, Will any of the things that I dream about ever be possible for me? <laughs> and <laughs> totally. I'm like smoking cigarettes and just like, yeah, I don't know. Like And you're like,
0: God, what does human
1: touch feel like? Yeah, like <laughs>
0: I mean, I remember moments when I was like alone, living in a small town in the middle of nowhere, and like I was doing okay and money-wise, but I was that was very new for me. I was on the poverty line right before that, um, and I was, but I was more alone. And I just remember like having to like literally hold myself while I I wept myself to sleep, you know, because there were like that was the closest I could get to like experiencing touch
1: there's probably a lot of people out there who are like, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, yeah. I never talk about that to anybody, but that's, what's up. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, you know, and it, it was interesting. Cause it's, I feel like in some ways the attempt to brand these guys as something is like an attempt to forestall identification because there's probably a lot here to identify with like a lot of different kinds of people. Like, you don't have to be white or a man to like know what a lot of this is like. I bet I'm willing to bet, you know. And I think I that's think part that, of why
0: Moyers was interested in these guys, you know, yeah. is that they. But here's here's why that won't happen, right? Because okay, so it's going to be these culture industry people that review and process this stuff by and large, right? One of the things that Vidi says. <laughs> I love this. He says, it's not so much about making a blue check with a hundred thousand followers look like a fucking idiot. It's about telling all your boys that that's what you did. <laughs> and I was like, nice. <laughs> um, I was like, it do be like that though. Um, but that, that it can't work like that. Cause those are the guys, they're in opposition to those people, the people who would make the sense of what this cultural content is. The people who would grok it for, uh, readership, right? Is that the people that they are at least culturally pitted against, and frankly, probably structurally for some of these guys, are these people who have control over the media
1: narrative? You know. Yeah, I was. I've been trying to make a lot of sense of this because I, I watched this and I just I was thinking a lot about well, like a lot that it reminded me of a lot of my own life, and I think like you watch a process in this movie of these people growing up a little bit. And then like, you know, by no means are any of the basic problems of life, like forever solved because that's not life, you know? And I think the combat even points it out in the movie, like, you know, <laughs> he's you like, what are you talking about? Like yeah, what's yeah, the like, end you, of life? Like, yeah, there's no conclusion mean? to this movie that you understand us now or something like, because yeah. it's not over, we're all still living. And I, you know, like that's true. Um, And so in that vein, like I'm thinking back to when I was more of in a position like them because I think I did, I lived similarly to that, but like five to 10 years prior to them like doing it because they're all quite a bit younger than us. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just remembered like, yeah, you know, you really similar. Oh, I think it was Charles who was saying you just like at some point you stop caring about school. You don't mm-hmm. really know why. You just hate it. So you stop showing up to class, drop out, which, you know, that's what I did. And then you're just like neat. Suddenly you're living with your parents, and it's like years and years are starting to go by don't have a driver's license came up i was like yeah i didn't get a driver's license till i was like 25 Um, right
0: yeah that's why i'm gonna make the 20 year old walker meme uh the (laughs) the image for for this because that was very much you when we first met
1: yeah walks around his city (laughs) knows his city like the back of his hand like
0: (laughs) all people wonder what's wrong with him
1: (laughs) i gotta we gotta put that in the show notes because what he's wearing is like two too spot no that, on. Dude, that that's was gonna like be
0: the image to cover image for the thing don't oh
1: we? yeah that was sophisticated um <laughs> but so you're like that's your life and you kind of spend most of your time at home you wake up at two in the afternoon and then what like you play video games and like post on forums or something you know like I never really liked 4chan that much because I didn't really like the anonymous aspect. I sort of preferred the forum where everyone had a persona. distinct identity. Yeah. Like everyone had persona. And so you had relationships and things in a certain way, which I never felt like, like 4chan was just too much of a chaotic mass for me. It was kind of horrifying. So I didn't really like go on there much, but you find this stuff like in different ways in different places where you've got a lot of people online and then you suddenly realize like, oh, we're all fail sons. Like most of us don't have a job or whatever. We're just like watching, you know, anime, playing video games, whatever, you know, reading books. There's like a significant segment of people I knew who were like avid readers of middle English, but like no job, no. <laughs> yeah, you know dude, what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Hell yeah, bro. Hell <laughs> um, yeah. And so you you have these communities of people and, You know, it's, like, the only form of conviviality you really have access to in a lot of ways. I mean, I was lucky to have IRL friends as well, but, you know, not everybody does. Um, No, dude. I
0: mean, the fact that we're even, like, doing this podcast and that, like, we've been friends for, like, a decade is insane to me, you know? Yeah. It makes... Watching this movie, like, really reinforced a gratitude I already felt where I was like, damn, like, had I... Had a few other things like gone wrong for me, you know, um, shit really, really, really wouldn't have worked out, mm-hmm. you know, and they yeah. were things that were like largely out of my control.
1: I I was thinking about that pretty constantly. Like when you were saying like, you need to ask for help multiple times, I was thinking like, yeah, I'm where I'm at today because I could get help in a lot of different ways from a lot of different people. and, like, they were the one thing standing between me and just, like, having no ability to do what I was trying to do. Like, just total foreclosure of that possibility. And, you know, it makes you very humble and grateful, I think, to think about that because it's not, like, you know, I didn't entrepreneur my way out of living like that and you know, yeah, moving totally. out of that town, living in a new place, having a lot more opportunity uh, you know just like all of those things happened for me because a bunch of people helped me and yeah i was able to get to a place where i could make use of their help but i still relied on a lot of other people and not everybody has other people that are going to help them like that and you know but for the grace of god there go i uh in a lot of ways Right, right.
0: Well, and a lot of experience. of So, you know, I have this sort of like cusp experience of having like this uh, privately educated life, you know, being a scholarship kid in a lot of these institutions or whatever. Uh, But then also like, you know, meeting you when I did like living on the margins, like in some ways I have not all the way down the scale, where I've always been like both in and out of either of these worlds you know, constantly flickering between them over the course of my adult life. And I feel like that's given me a pretty good advantage at which to look at both of these things. And I really appreciated that the difference was basically that I had been to fucking college. Mm-hmm. Like that's it, you know? And, that's how we've structured our society. It's just like, well, we don't respect manual labor. We've gotten rid of our entire man, not in our entire that. Okay. That's an exaggeration. We've gotten <laughs> rid of like our, a large portion of what used to be our manufacturing base, which by the way, goes into some like early high cold war ideas that are drummed up around the Korean war about what to do with America's manufacturing and how we could liberalize China with it. But you, you could have a shot if you're willing to like make yourself like a debtor Mm -hmm. so that you can make like an extra 10k a year and we also live in a society where that like extra 10k is like the difference between
1: a certain type of material dignity and not having it (laughs) yeah and it and it's stratified even within too to a certain extent like you can see there's a really big difference between like and I'm not even going to say how hard these people are working, but we'll just say like the career center at a community college and the career center at like a top 10 public university, even not even counting IVs or something like mm-hmm. there's just only so much people can do for you when broadly people have never heard of or respected the name of your institution. So even if you're trying to like take people in and say like, we're going to educate you so that you can go find a job, Well, it's all about where you have friends. It's
0: all about where you have friends,
1: too. Like, Like, I got published for
0: the first time because I ended up working at a bookstore with a dude who went to Yale, mm, who then ended up being an editor somewhere. Yeah. And, like, you know, his background was pretty different than mine in some ways. I mean, there were some overlaps there, you know, but, like, I did not go to an Ivy, you know?
1: Yeah, I think it... That's what CompBot said. There was a beautiful like drone shot of one of these flyover towns they live in and it's like just suffused with some kind of pathos or something looking at it. But Mm -hmm. so you're looking at it and he's like, you know, these guys don't have any connections. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, they don't have any connections. They don't probably like no one in their family did anything like what we're talking about. And there's a certain level of knowledge that you get that's passed down to you from your parents who like, you know, for whatever reason, they don't necessarily have to have done this themselves, but they have to be plugged into the world where they can know about it and what it takes and how to get you there. And many of the people who are in these positions are because their parents had that ability and that access. And if you grow up without that, it's like really tough to figure that out on your own. Like no one really talks to you about like applying to college or like what that means or what it's going to take from you or how you need to be thinking about that, like really earlier on than you ever, you know, like if yeah, you're just figuring this about, out on your own, like, yeah, it's tough.
0: Yeah. And Combat talks about like, okay, so you want to be an author, but then you have to deal with the publishing world and like, what's that. And you know, one of the reasons why there are many reasons why, like I never really took off as a writer. Some of them might be my own ability. I don't know. I mean, that's not for me to judge, But one of the decisions I made right after college was not to move to a place like New York because I was like, it's a shithole. I don't like it. Um, I had this big Midwestern chip on my shoulder about it and it seemed like giving in. And instead I made the uh, insane choice of moving to Tallahassee on a Greyhound bus with two suitcases and $300 in my pocket with no job lined up. And like, that's what I did. But looking back, I can see that if I had really wanted to be a part of that world, I would have had to have been in New York hustling with the Gia Tolentinos of the world, <laughs> way more money than me, uh, to get these jobs at online publications that were flitting in and at, in and out of existence, based on a propped-up ad revenue economy that were funded by multi-millionaires and billionaires uh, who wanted their hedge fund portfolios to look cool, who could destroy the publication at will. That's you know, basically what we've seen play out. And that a lot of people, a very small set of people who were doing that, walked out with careers.
1: Yeah. And a lot of those people are the people who had enough money that they could float while they were doing that. Like And no one, that you you that. S- no one tells
0: you that no one tells you that.
1: It's the same thing you see whenever you watch any Chris Ott stuff. And he talks about, like, who are the actual people who are, like, famous pop musicians. And the vast majority of them were, like, born rich and yeah. had the ability to... Or
0: super poor and had nothing else going for them. And it yeah. was like, that's it. You know, it's the barbell. It's the Telebian barbell. <laughs> you
1: know? <laughs> uh, yeah. And it's... No, no one does tell you that. You don't really get a sense of what the game is like and how people are set up at the beginning and what your position is you're kind of lost for a lot a lot of the time and it's it's one of the interesting places where like possibility seems opened up it's where compost starts talking about how he's like doing his own thing Mm -hmm. and how he thinks that a lot of these people maybe because initially of the fact that they found a lot of things close to them or having to do their own thing and like chart what is genuinely like pretty new courses and like how to not only make it, but have some fidelity to like what you feel like is important in life as you're figuring that out, which I think was the like interesting and genuinely hopeful end, not the sort of attempt to neatly wrap it up in a bow and say mm-hmm. they're all doing well now. But One of them that, a girlfriend, like, you know. Yeah, yeah uh, what was more interesting to me is like they've got some sense of like direction.
0: Yeah. Also, I just want to say props to Charles who got his guns confiscated from him by the state for posting a one ticket for Joker picture of himself holding two AK-47s and then managed during all of that legal trouble to find a girlfriend on 4chan. King shit. King shit. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Like props, dude. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so we can talk about I mean, scenes are force multipliers, right? That's basically what they are. When we look at what happens to Washington D.C. with Discord Records, when we see what happens to Athens, Georgia in the '80s, when we look at the Seattle scene, you know, we can shift all this around. The Gilman Street scene in the Bay, you know, all of these things. Uh, I must rep my Chicago scene with like industrial and sort of the late Chicago modernism of the 1980s and early '90s. These were all things that existed because people were outside of these institutions and creating it on their own. You could say the same thing about like house music also happens in Chicago in the eighties. Right. And hip hop. Yeah. All the stuff happens outside of these institutions for the most part, which should give us some pause when we think about how useful they're going to be for generating culture. I also think about what Chris Ott says in his video, the hiding he talks about, what are you going to do when there's no closure on any of these communities in a lot of ways, you're going to start to see people moving towards platforms that remove them from the algorithm where they can enforce some sort of boundaries on their community, because you need that enclosure to make anything happen. Now those enclosures are going to work differently than they did when things were totally bounded by geography and Geography is still going to play a role, but I think that's what we see when we see people like Compot or Sean or Logo switching us, you know, like deciding to say like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to be somewhere else, you know. However, you also have to ask how possible is that going to be, right? And you can think about it like this with all the indie and punk stuff that happens in the 70s, 80s and early 90s in America, Could any of them have functioned without the distribution networks already created by major record labels? It's a big deal when IRS records can get REM into the mall, right? Like that's super important, but that can only work if you have these larger entities. So I do think that it's also a mistake to say that you're like revolutionizing the fundamental structure of something like this. You can still do something important. You can still do something that matters to you. You can still do something that's going to mean something to a lot of people around you. And after all, like the reason why you get into this shit is because it is in some degree social, but those are also going to be its limits. So in terms of what Kantbot says at the beginning, which is, I think I agree with you, the more salient takeaway of any feeling of hope or possibility here is we have to set it next to the broader context in which it exists.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> i I really like the hiding i think that's one of my favorite videos he ever did Mm -hmm. because i when he talks about how you have to have barriers to entry for it to mean anything to be inside it just makes so much sense and you realize that like anything meaningful that i was ever a part of kind of required me to do what he talks about like you have to kind of investigate what is what are these people like Mm -hmm. and am i interested in that genuinely like Cause you know, it's all a process of aping to become like, oh, I'll be like them so I can be included with them. And going through that process, you realize like, Oh, maybe this isn't worth it to me. Like, maybe this is like fake. And I, you know what I mean? Or maybe yeah. like. That, or you know, you're like, just like,
0: I don't care about that. Or like, you know, whatever that's not to my taste. I mean, here's you learn a I- lot
1: about yourself and totally, totally take something from you to join. And so you had to pay a cost. So it means something to be there. Yeah. And, like, you know, that seems to me to be fundamental. Like, Chris Ott took most of his videos out of the algorithm because of this very reason. Like, yeah. I don't think there is a reason for what he has to say being generated, like, in a list for some, like, 15 year old kid to look at on YouTube really weirdly randomly from, like, 20 years ago. You know what I like? There's some lack of real context to that. And I can understand why you wouldn't want to be a part of that and why it would be even more meaningful for you to be doing something for people where, you know, like you don't want to reach everybody because it wouldn't mean anything for everyone to be looking at it. Like it only means something if it is heading towards the social context, which is ready to receive it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot about, Like, look, path dependency isn't necessarily bad. And that's what happens when you create one of the artistic communities, right? In other words, you're making certain decisions that guide things in a certain direction. And that is going to reduce your optionality over a certain period of time. Because you just, you can't do everything. You can't be everything to all people. And I think what's interesting is that you have to have options to begin with a lot of times. You know, at least a couple. You know, you can join the football team, you can learn to play guitar. Yeah. yeah. Maybe some guys can do both, like Sean says, you know. <laughs> uh, but but look, like when we're looking at these guys in that field when no GF, we ha- also have to take a look at their options, right? That's sort of this uh, hinted at thing that's happening in the background here, like Compot says they have no connections. Where are they going to go to create meaning, to get away from the boredom? Of the bleakness of the existence to make sense of our hyper normalized, extremely online digitalized society. Where's that going to happen? I think Viddy's right when he points out like, well, people used to go to punk shows or whatever. And like, this is the version of that, you know, and I think I remember the alpha bunga bunga guys reviewed this documentary when it came out and they were just like, well, yeah, but you know, uh, they were rightly pointing out how alienating America is. Cause I think they were pretty fresh off a visit out here. And uh, they were just like, yeah, I mean, there's something kind of like weird and antisocial and sad about that. And I'm just like, yeah, I mean, that's a very American experience. Like there's no place to go. The VFW hall is closed down. You can't do punk shows any th- anymore. Like none of that works, you know, the way it used to. So like, what are you going to do? You're going to sit inside your room <laughs> and fuck around on the internet. Mm-hmm. But I also think don't want to have this like rosy picture of what punk used to be, which was full of, it was a very, very small group of totally crazy and marginal people. Some of them were like middle-class interlopers. You'll get that with guys like in articles of faith, literally the entire discord scene, like the entirety of it. All of them were like, I mean, it's DC. They were all military brats or like their parents were probably fucking working for the CIA in like suburban Virginia or whatever. And you can just read the entire like discord output is like one big Gen X fuck you to, you know, the US security state that reared them or whatever. And, but a lot of times these were people who were like very, very damaged I'm not saying you can't be like from their Discord background and be damaged, by the way. I think Henry Rollins is a pretty good example of somebody who never got over it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh what I am saying is that uh there were a whole there was a whole group of people that were experiencing a liminal existence in society that came to that music. And not all of them were good people, some of them were very damaged, some of them have extremely fucked up ways of looking at the world and interacting with it. And some of them were thoughtful, compassionate, you know, and likely a mix of all of these things as anybody is. And I think that that's one of my major takeaways from that field with no GF. If, as we say, that the incel thing doesn't really work and what we're really paying attention to is this broader alienation and that this alienation has within itself its own tensions, its own fights, the less alienated, but still like, precarious people who write for these uh, legacy get publications and don't necessarily get paid that much for it. And these guys who are, you know, out in the middle of like, you know, Flint, Michigan or wherever creating music uh, or creating posts or doing whatever that's antagonistic to the other people that feel alienated. Uh, That's basically the context in which we're in, you know, And so it's not, it can't ever just be all one thing. And I really, I cannot stand these people who think like they have these absolutely spotless psyches, that they have indeed never thought anything fucked up, that they have never expressed anything dark, that they have no untoward inclinations that they have not been able to completely master. To believe that, to believe that you're exempt from all of those basic features of being a human is the height of arrogance and the beginning of moral bankruptcy, ironically.
1: Yeah, I was speaking of Middle English, reading La Mort Tour, and I'm like a couple hundred pages in now. And one of the things I noticed is that it does seem like it's partially Thomas Mallory sort of asking himself, like, what is social ethics or something like that? what does that mean for like a cast of warriors and the basic assumption is that every single one of them are capable of some really bad stuff and like will do it in certain circumstances. So like what then, like, is it possible for society to be constituted on a different basis? And I was just thinking about that. And I was like, that is really not the premise from which ethical thinking proceeds from today at all. Like, there's no recognition of the shared sort of capability of humanity to be, you know, like higher than angels or lower, you know, than animals, um, as kind of like our range of possibility. It is very much like what people really want to imply to you is that like, you know, I don't know why those people are bad. I think they chose it. I know that I chose to be good, you know, and that's really all there is to it or whatever. And it is like, Really?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, so I gave a lecture on Plato's, the first book of Plato's Republic a couple of weeks ago. Some of you were there. Thank you for coming. And one of the places where I agree with Plato is towards the end of book one, when he's encountering Thrasymachus, he's saying he he goes through the uh, honor among thieves problem. If all these guys are just chiseling for their own advantage, do you really believe that they can hold a society together? Like, that just seems preposterous on its face to him. There are things that Plato does believe that I think are preposterous, but I think he's right on that rebuttal to a sort of real politique and, like, Hobbesian, basically, uh, even though that'd be sort of anachronistic to bring those things together, thinking you know, that's, uh, I don't think that that works. And I think part of the alienation that we're experiencing is a consequence of that. And if you've listened to our after virtue thing, you'll understand that sort of where we're going with some of this, like towards a diagnosis of decay.
1: Yeah. It's, I I never realized that but Minchus makes pretty much the same exact point in the first couple pages of the book by the same title. Um, or I think so some school of thought was proffering that like a profit motive will lead everyone to making everything the best because if everyone's working for profit, you know, isn't it just naturally so that things will really like be better and there will be more profit for everyone. And he was saying like, well, if everyone's motivated by profit, then like, what will they choose between society and themselves every time? And like, what really will that generate? Like, Will anyone do anything for anyone else? Will people be loyal to their superiors or like families loyal to each other? Will there be any eye toward anything other than the most immediate gain? And so, because this was, he was saying like, you know, the ruler should act for profit. And the argument goes like, if the ruler acts for profit, then every single person under him will take his cue and do exactly the same. Um, I don't I Yeah. That one always really resonated with me, and there's, and I think maybe because it feels so like, wow, I wish I could witness that in real life somewhere, like, right, people right. acting together for something else, like,
0: <laughs> totally, totally, and I mean, I think, you know, I want to say this to sort of complicate our own view here. One of the arguments for this, like pursuit of profit and things like that, does come out of experience of high fidelity violence in religious conflicts that sometimes last religious political conflicts, you know, those things are often the same and bring out the worst elements of each other that sometimes last for like a hundred years. So there's this hope for a type of neutrality that if everybody can look after their own end, and we're not really getting into an ideological conflict that we're really ventilating a lot of some of the worst instincts and they see themselves as skating out of that issue where you would say like, I think this is right. You think that's wrong. That's it. We're a fight. It's like, well, what if we demoted some of these things and made them put them in the sphere of the passions and the interests and turned them into just opinion or whatever. And I don't want to let us off the hook because that's a real argument. That's a real idea. And I think too often by people who are like us, maybe a little bit antagonistic to these ideas or feel like we're seeing some of their bitter fruits are too casual to dismiss what I think is an actually very legitimate political ethical concern that is born of material experience at the heart of that. And one of the things that we're trying to reckon with on the show is how do we respond to these contending arguments in light of what we're seeing today?
1: Yeah. It's definitely not that there's not a very good reason for a lot of things that have ever happened, Yeah, but it's that we're alive at a specific time and place when faced with certain things that, you know, at least to us it feels important to like think about and respond to them and you know i think you're right that just as we're not eager to give much quarter to what we see as like the hegemonic ideas it's also extremely useful to not give it to ourselves either yes um because it you know if nothing else it makes your arguments and you kind of weak and just like unsatisfying when you allow yourself to play with something like in a straw man kind of way. And, you know, so.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just a uh,
1: bit of self-reflection.
0: I think that's true. <laughs> and, you know, like to sort of wrap up the conversation on that field when no GF, I mean, sort of rangy and all over the place, but that's because all this is ongoing. Like Kantbot says, you know, I think it was an interesting meditation on who some of these figures are you know, and I'm glad it was made. I enjoyed watching it. I, um, it certainly gave me a lot to think about in terms of my own life and where I've been and what I've seen based on everything I've said here. Uh, I'm sure that you listeners know that by now. So that's where we are. John, do you have any last sentiments?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I too found it really enjoyable to watch and like, the moments of like pretty genuine humanity, I think shine through quite often. And I think, you know, it wasn't a perfect film or whatever by any means, but it succeeded in a lot of ways that I think are pretty worthy of respect. And it, you know, I, One of the things that people brought up that they found so problematic was that it just simply interviewed them and didn't provide any voiceovers or talking head experts to contextualize their lives for you, which, you know, we don't even need to go into why that. Yeah, grow
0: the fuck up and quit being a goddamn baby. Yeah. Shut up. Shut up and listen. You don't have to agree with something just because you listen to it unmitigated. God
1: damn.
0: Jesus Christ. What are you going to cry? Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) It was so funny because it was basically like I don't think that all people are worthy of like some basic amount of dignity of being able to tell me their own story. Like only some people are that good. Or and some, in the know? way
0: I like it. And in the way I like it.
1: Yeah. So while they bring that up as a, as a horrible problem, I see that as one of the strengths. It was very similar, I think, mm-hmm. to. Until the light takes us actually to make that comparison again to another documentary. Yes. Um, (laughs) Canonical
0: for exhaust.
1: Yeah. Film with the exact same. Philosophical outlook on how to do a documentary. Uh, Really similar use of shots of the nearby landscape mixed in with the interview, like through and through pretty similar and achieving a really similar effect. Like I'd never enjoyed on the same level, any other like Norwegian black metal documentary, because they're all just sensationalist BS. And like, you may not agree with the self portrayal of the people that until the light takes us offers you, but it's so much more digestible. Like you can actually engage with it and be like, okay, like, I have this guy's side unmitigated and now I can think about that. It's not convoluted with like, Nine million layers of editorialism for like multiple different reasons. Right. Just like you should be able to
0: editorialize it, it yourself because yeah. you have critical thinking skills yeah. and you should be able to sit there and figure and weigh these things. And it should take you a while to do that. And that's the value in letting someone just show themselves to you.
1: Yeah. And then mean, it
0: puts the responsibility of interpretation on you
1: as it should. I don't think people believe in the Enlightenment, to be honest with you. I've been realizing that more and more. Oh, no, like, they don't. They don't. You Read Kant's, like, what is Enlightenment? And he's like, it is for everyone to think for themselves, basically. Like, mm-hmm. we are now in a state of maturity. We no longer need people to tell us what to believe because we are all growing into our rational faculties where we can make these decisions for ourselves. And that is basically what Enlightenment is. And you're like, oh, okay. Like, there are probably some problems with that like societally but like that's a pretty interesting view and Mm -hmm. stuff and then you forget about it and move on and then you assume like oh yeah we live in a rational enlightenment derived society so this is really one of the fundamental beliefs people have but it's not actually (laughs) no i
0: I think if you take some of the material political and cultural shifts what you see is insane regression yeah away from these things Which were also the impetus for uh, revolutionary movements all over the world in France, in Haiti, in India, and in other places.
1: Yeah. I get in honor of Kant, but I watched this documentary as a Kantian. And so I looked at each one of these people and I believed that they had an inherent human value. Nice. Because they existed as an end and not as a means and they're moral agents. And Mm -hmm. so I, You know, they should be afforded dignity and my respect because their value is completely immeasurable. And I, in my own turn, thought about everything they had to say on my own and came to my own conclusions. And I could only hope that we could do the same.
0: Hell yeah, I think we should end it there. I don't don't think it's going to get better than that. So why don't we end it there? Uh, Thanks for hanging out with us, guys. This one was a chiller. Uh, We've been doing lots and lots of vegetables lately with all of the technical breakdown stuff we've been doing. So we hope that this one was a nice change of pace and gave you some things to think about. As always, stay safe out there, and we will see you next time.